This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 5 of Office Hours. Our theme is New Life in the Shadow of Death. We're talking about sanctification, the teaching of Scripture, that believers in Christ, freely accepted by God for Christ's sake alone, and united to Christ through faith alone, are being gradually and graciously conformed to Christ. According to Scripture, as understood by the Reformed and Presbyterian churches, God the Spirit uses three means or instruments to bring us to faith and to help us grow in godliness. The preaching of the gospel, the sacraments, and prayer. The first two of these are objective announcements of God's good news for sinners. The third is our subjective response to that good news, which God uses to strengthen our daily communion with Him. All believers know to pray. Scripture says, pray without ceasing. But how do we pray? Joining us to walk through this question with us is Dr. Steve Baugh, professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. Steve has taught at Westminster since 1982 and is the author of several articles, two Greek grammars, and he's a contributor to the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary. All these and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Steve, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me. Well, we're here to talk about prayer, and in particular, I want to consider with you the model prayer that our Lord gave us, and we call that the Lord's Prayer, and we're looking at Matthew 6, beginning, I suppose, at verse 5, which is where the pericope or the section begins. But let's talk a little bit about the prayer before we get into the actual prayer itself. Why, in the context in Matthew, did the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to pray? Didn't the disciples already know how to pray? The passage we're looking at in Matthew 6 is a development within a larger section of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount. As such, it really represents a block of teaching that Jesus did over the course of some time. It's presented to us as Jesus sitting in one place, but Matthew presents this to us as a sampling of the kinds of teaching that Jesus is doing over a period of time. That's clear from how it's introduced in chapter 4 at the end. And Jesus has been saying things to his disciples which really took them aback. The disciples expected him to be introducing the end of this current age immediately. They were expecting him as Messiah to introduce the new creation in its complete, consummated form. He opens the Sermon on the Mount, though, with some shocking things. In particular, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when he said that, he is pronouncing God's blessing upon his people who will suffer for righteousness' sake. When the disciples hear that, they think to themselves, wait a second, we're done with all that. We don't have to suffer anymore for righteousness' sake. He's going to introduce the new creation. There will be no more unrighteousness. There will be no more persecution. There will only be happiness and peace and righteousness as the water covers the sea. 
So he's been introducing them to the idea that, yes, he is introducing the inauguration of the kingdom of God, but this age will continue until he comes again. So in the midst of that, they're so confused, they don't know how to pray. I mean, should we pray for what? I mean, why would we even have to pray? We'll be standing in the presence of God soon, and it will be a no-brainer of how to praise. We'll just follow the lead of Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of our forefathers, David and the Asaph and the other psalm composers, in eternal praise. So I think they were really confused. So the question, how should we pray, is really a loaded question. It's carrying the freight of a lot of other questions. So it's not a simple question, how do we talk to God? I mean, certainly it is that, but it's more than that. It's connected to all kinds of expectations about the future, about which they were confused. And so when our Lord teaches us to pray in Matthew 6, he is also sorting out indirectly a whole series of other questions. Is that fair? I think that's exactly right. And I think it really helps us to understand what's said in this prayer and how he's instructing us, because he's essentially telling us how to live in this age where he's introduced the inauguration of the kingdom of God, but it hasn't been consummated yet. So what are our aspirations? What is it that we're looking forward to? And how do we interact in this age until then? Because things are different. Because going back to your original question, why would they need to be instructed in how to pray when they have the Psalms, when they have the prayers of Solomon or David or other saints of the Old Testament as great models for them to follow? Daniel chapter 9 is a great confession of sin. Exactly. And many of the Psalms are prayers, sung, of course, but they are models of prayer for us to follow even today. But they want to know how do we pray now that you've come, now that we're here, and, you know, what are you up to? (laughs) Well, let's go back to our passage then. In chapter 5, he says, And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to stand in the squares and being noticed and such. So he's telling them, you will still have to pray as those who are in this age, and God is invisible to you. I don't think we'll have to be instructed in how to pray when we face the Lord. We'll be on our faces. (laughs) Yeah, which is the posture that's almost universally adopted by believers or humans when they come in the presence of God as he reveals himself in Scripture, right? And then in verse 7, he says, Don't pray like the Gentiles who imagine because of the repetition of words. He actually uses a word here that means kind of nonsense repetition of words. And don't imitate them, for your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask him. So that implies that we will still need things from our heavenly Father. And the disciples are thinking, well, what could we need? We have you, because they don't expect Jesus to leave them ever. Uh, Of course, he has to instruct them in all that. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. They're expecting, as you said, the consummate state. Walk us through that distinction. You made a distinction between the inauguration and the consummation. So inauguration means what? I think the easiest way to think about this is to imagine an earthly kingdom with a king. And so we have King Jesus appearing. He is a king who, before his crucifixion and exaltation, resurrection and exaltation to the right hand of the Father, the place of power and rule, 
he was entering into his kingship. But what he inaugurates in particular in this age, among other things, the real focus in the scriptures is he is enrolling citizens of his kingdom. And he is doing that by faith in him and regeneration of the Holy Spirit that we may believe in him. The giving of new life. Right. Which is the down payment of our resurrection. And so he's He's making us citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That's in the Beatitudes that we saw at the beginning of chapter 5. It is a language that Paul picks up in other places, including Colossians. You know, keep seeking the things above. Your citizenship is in heaven. It's actually very prominent in Ephesians 2. And so this is inaugurated centering on us, the church, the people who confess Christ and join together in the church. We are the outpost of the kingdom, as it were, her somebody else talk about it as an embassy, which is a good way to put it as well. We're an embassy, the liaison between the world and the new creation. And so to inaugurate means to to begin. Yeah, to introduce. To initiate. Yes. But the whole thing, so that gets us to the second term, consummation, the final state, the way things will be, isn't yet. It is not yet in every way, no. The focus has been on citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and that is people who confess Christ, who have a new citizenship, but other features of the new creation have not yet been consummated. Romans 8 is a good place to see that. This creation has been subjected to futility, and it groans for the revelation of the sons of God, which is a reference to our resurrection. So that day of consummation is the new heavens and the new earth. If you want to see that very clearly, you start in several places, but you can go right to Revelation 21, where it opens with, Behold, I make all things new. And the center of all that newness is, And God will dwell in the midst of his people. He will be their God, and they will be his people forever. And there's no temple particularly with a curtain dividing the people from the presence of God. So this prayer is a prayer for pilgrims. It's for those who are living between the beginning of things, the beginning of the final state, and the completion of the final state. That is is vital. That is really vital to see. And so Jesus introduces to his disciples a prayer which acknowledges the inauguration and a hope and expectation for consummation. And that's exactly what we're praying when we say, your kingdom come. That prayer means two things. May the kingdom of your grace extend in this age by our outreach to others through your gospel and your work in the church, O Lord. May you extend your gospel to where all of your people worldwide will embrace it, whom you call to yourself. But then it also means bring the end of the age, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Bring in the consummation, bring in the new heavens and a new earth. Bring in the day when we no longer have to pray to you without seeing you. Some Christians, in a way maybe that's a little bit analogous to the confusion and questions the disciples had, some Christians are reluctant to use the Lord's Prayer either verbatim or as a guide to their own private prayers or their prayers in public worship, partly because they're concerned not to fall into the very thing that Jesus condemned, which is the public display or ritualism or formalism. How should we think about using the Lord's Prayer as a pattern for prayer or even using the Lord's Prayer itself? 
Well, you actually said two things. It is interesting, the Westminster Standards that I'm familiar with, in particular as a confessional document, both the larger catechism and the shorter catechism address that and say, well, we use the Lord's Prayer as a pattern, and you find that in verse 9. So Matthew 6, verse 9, Jesus says, pray in this way. Here, then, is how you should pray. So he expects us to elaborate upon these things and to provide a pattern that we follow. So here are the kinds of things that we are to focus on in our prayers. And just saying that, you also follow his instruction earlier. We're not doing this to be seen by others, and there are things embedded in the prayer that help us with that. And also, we don't have to elaborate on it in great detail. We don't say the same word over and over. So, for example, you wouldn't want to assign somebody to pray the Lord's Prayer 100 times for the forgiveness of sins. You know what I'm talking about, of course, since that is done in a particular communion. That just goes against what Jesus tells us here. This is not a rote prayer that you just say over and over, and it has some sort of magic result dwell on that for just a moment, because there are a lot of Christians from a variety of traditions who do use words over and over again in different ways. This is a practice that is influential both in American evangelicalism and in other traditions. What is the difference between Christian prayer, or prayers that are given to us in Scripture, and an attitude, and this business of repetition? Our Lord mentions, you know, not to do the kinds of things that the Gentiles did. Do you have some idea of the kinds of things that the Gentiles did? The Gentiles would use, both the Greeks and Romans would use prayers that they'd inherited from centuries previously with words and statements that they didn't understand anymore. They were basically meaningless words to them, archaic words that they'd lost the sense of what it was. And so they would repeat those words thinking that in themselves the words had some sort of mystic power and control over the God to bend them to your will. That's a huge point. It's a very common practice in antiquity. And it's a common practice today. It's widely held that if we say certain things that God is bound or has bound himself to do what we say if we use the right words. And therein lies a view of God that is, it seems to me, essentially pagan, that he works for us that we can make him do what we want. So if we name something, and if we claim something, and if we believe it strongly enough, he has to give it to us. This is why Jesus in verse 8, and then opening the Lord's Prayer, has us invoke God as our Father. He relates to us on the analogy of a father to his children. And the father doesn't work for the children, although he does. He loves them, he cares for them, and he provides for them. Preaching is so important because it's foolish, according to the scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. Or we don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear his word as it's written and apply it to the hearts and minds of God people. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the pastor is doing his work faithfully, the Word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's people. Westminster Seminary, California, WSCAL.edu, 888-480-4673.
800-288-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. But not in the way that they... No, they may ask for something that is to their harm, and the Father will not give that to them if He loves them. Daddy, give me some candy. And Dad says, well... Daddy, give me the cigarette. Daddy, <laughs> give me that, that fast car, and I'm going to drive it 100 miles an hour and wreck it. And all of that, at any given time, might not be good for you. And Dad knows that dinner's coming, or you you were just at the dentist, or whatever the circumstances are. So just because you look mournfully at him, he's not necessarily going to give you, but he'll give you what you need. Neither will your mom, by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So our Lord says, then, our Father, who art in heaven, or our Father who is in heaven. And notice what he says in verse 8. He knows what you need. He provides what we need, what we need for this life in our pilgrimage. I love that description of really the whole of the Christian life, that we are pilgrims. And this is certainly a pilgrim prayer. But we're pilgrims with a heavenly Father who knows our needs and who loves us and cares for us. That's what Jesus is conveying as he introduces the prayer and says, you don't really have to pray with all these words and all this kind of quasi-magic that you imagine is effective. And so he introduces with a prayer with just six things to ask for as a kind of starting point, but certainly the core of our concerns. It opens with a concern for God's name for his reputation, for his ascendancy over this creation. May your name be hallowed, that old-fashioned term, which is really packed with a lot of meaning. Well, I do think you, you just need to dwell on, you know, our Father, because that is not a very common Old Testament reference to God. His fatherhood was acknowledged and confessed in various places, but not that often in prayer. Usually it was, O oh Lord, the God of Israel. But here his fatherhood is placed at the forefront of our thinking of him when we pray to him. I think that's important. But then the first thing we ask for is we ask for something that he will do for his glory. That really should be the focus of our attention. And I think now when you think of that as the first thing we ask for and really brought up prominently, it gets us outside of ourselves that we see anything he gives us will be for his glory and our good follows. So it's not selfishness now. We start focusing on what he's up to in the world, which then results in our good and what we need if he is glorified, because he is our father and he's going to work for his own glory, which is to extend his grace in this creation. Because that's really what it refers to. May your name be consecrated. And it's a way of saying, may your kingdom extend and may your name be upheld as holy and not dragged in the mud as it is now. Recognized for what it is. Unique, pure, clean, unstained, righteous, all of those things. And it's all connected, isn't it, to the fact that we are addressing our Father who is in heaven, which is the place of preeminently purity, holiness, glory, Whenever he makes his presence known on earth, he's veiling his glory so we don't die. This is what Moses discovered when he wanted to see God's face. And, of course, he was hidden in the cleft of the rock, and God said, well, I'll show you my back, which is a way of saying, no, you can't see me in my heavenly glory or you won't survive. But now we're praying that his name will he will manifest enough of his glory that it extends over this creation. And ultimately, as the next prayer starts unpacking, may your kingdom come, 
that the final day come, including, you know, what we mentioned earlier about the extension of the kingdom of grace through the gospel of Christ. But ultimately, his name will be glorified on the last day when he introduces the new creation. We were resurrected, we, his kingdom citizens, and his kingdom in all of its glory will extend everywhere like the angels experience now in heaven. Which is intimately connected to the next petition, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So narrow the gap, the profound gap between earth and heaven in your good pleasure. And now you see the disciples in this prayer are starting to see that their pilgrimage has a destination that we are praying for, and that it's a much bigger project than I think these disciples understood. They thought, well, we want to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem, and we want to live like David lived, with you on the throne here in Jerusalem, and have some boundaries that extend maybe into Syria, and even down into (laughs) Egypt. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Get rid of all these Samaritans, get rid of all the Gentiles up in Galilee, And we're going to have a kingdom. I know it's only a few hundred miles in diameter, but it's going to be really something. And Jesus is now exploding all that. And he says, no, I'm not satisfied with that. Now you're a part of a universal work worldwide and then even creation-wide. This prayer has cosmic dimensions, and it's about the relations not between geographic Israel and other geographic or geopolitical entities, but it's about the relations between heaven and earth. So the first half, really, of the prayer is about God, it's about heaven, it's about his glory, his will, and his kingdom, not ours, his being manifested and extended and revealed and progressing. Is that a fair summary? Yes, until its ultimate arrival in the return of the sun. So all of this is a prayer prayed by pilgrims who are on the way toward glory and anticipating the return of Jesus, the glorious triumphant return of the king. Calling on others to join him in the pilgrimage through the gospel, and then going somewhere that is beyond all reckoning in its scope and glory. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And then the prayer turns a little bit to a very earthy, very practical, very daily, very necessary concern. Give us this day our daily bread. You said it. (laughs) (laughs) But there's a strange reluctance, isn't there, sometimes on the part of believers, and we all struggle with this, to make this very simple petition to God, Father, please, in the name of Jesus, give me what I need to be sustained. Why is that such a hard prayer to pray sometimes? I don't have any problem with it. (laughs) So you've, you've never struggled with or never known anyone to struggle with making that prayer? I think the only reason we would struggle with this prayer is false humility. Oh, God is so exalted, he wouldn't be concerned about my daily needs and my earthly needs. And I I think that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is teaching here and elsewhere, that the Father is concerned about our daily needs. I mean, he goes on later in the Sermon on the Mount to talk about how much more valuable are you than the lilies of the field that the Father provides for? He'll care for you. Don't worry about these things. So it's a very strong urging not to worry about your daily affairs. The Father is concerned. So I do think we have to appreciate that you really led us up to this well. And that is the first part of it really focuses on this grand glory, new creation stuff. 
And then there's a turn to Jesus preparing the disciples to be pilgrims who have daily needs because we still live out our pilgrimage as new creation citizens in old creation dump, (laughs) as it were, you know, the dumpy trappings of this world that is filled with sin and want and poverty and, and worries sickness, all the things that can cause us to wonder whether our Father is concerned about these little things. He's got this great grand project of the kingdom. Well, what about, you know, feeding my family? And what about providing for us in our immediate needs? Well, here Jesus says, pray to him about that. He knows you need those, and he's concerned about them. And I think we need not be kind of falsely humble. Or falsely proud. Either side too proud to go to our Heavenly Father and admit our needs, right? Because I'm a husband and father is to provide for the family, and I should just, you know, pull myself up by my bootstraps. And and so sometimes that's the flip side of the temptation to say, well, the Lord is too grand and too glorious to be troubled with my little petitions. But the Psalms, for example, as you mentioned earlier, are replete with examples of believers going to the Lord with very practical concerns. Lord, save me. Save me from my enemies. I mean, there's nothing more practical than a prayer in the midst of battle and conflict and fear. And of course, there are lots of other places in Scripture where we're exhorted not to worry, but to make all of our concerns known to God with prayers and supplications. I think that's exactly right. And so you really just have this one short prayer, or this one short, it's called a petition, thing we're asking for, filled with these other things, but it really summarizes our daily bread, all the things we need to survive on earth. This is just one example that represents others, which is why the Lord's Prayer, we do pray it, its words, we can talk about that later, but also it provides a model so you can expand on things you need at this stage in your prayers to the Lord. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.